Take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning to Isaiah 64. Uh, I would like to ask you to be reading through another book in the Bible as we prepare to start a series on it in a few weeks. We'll be studying the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book that, that magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ and lifts him up and points out that there are no substitutes for Christ. In a very pluralistic age, it's kind of interesting the context of uh, Colossians because their society was very much like ours, very pluralistic. And so Paul is holding up Jesus before their eyes. And so we'll be looking at that in a few weeks. I'm corresponding the beginning of that series to more when school starts and sort of everybody's back in their place. But this morning, find Isaiah 64 in your copy of the scripture. And we're going to be looking at the subject matter, a passion for God. Do you have a passion for God? A passion for God. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah 64, Isaiah writes, All that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Father, you said that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And that you would open our understanding to your word and to your ways. And we pray this morning that you would do that. God, I pray that you would use this passage today in someone's life. That it would be a reorientation of their whole entire focus and what they're about. God, I pray as a people that we would have a greater passion for you. Lord, that we would be a different people because of your work of grace you've done in our lives through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, again, just open our understanding, convict us of our sin and any apathy that might be in our heart and anything that needs to be dealt with, God, that we would lay it at your feet, that you would cleanse us. And renew us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. I love studying about one of the central characters of the Reformation. A man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in November of 1483 and Martin Luther had a passion for God. Although initially that passion was misguided and misdirected. 
Before Luther had become a Christian, he was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, initially, his father had him attending the university to become a lawyer. Luther was a brilliant student and most surely would have had a very lucrative career in law out in front of him. By age 23, he had not only accomplished his bachelor's degree, but he had also earned his master's degree. But he didn't think very much of the university. In his words, the university was nothing more than a beer house and a whorehouse. Luther was never one to mince words. It makes you kind of wonder what he would say today. But several of Martin Luther's friends had recently died and God was using all of that in his life. And Martin Luther himself had come very close to death. You see, he carried a large hunting knife on his side and the sheath had begun to wear out without hunting knife and, and on one occasion when he was stooping down or sitting, that hunting knife went through the sheath and stabbed him in his leg and severed one of his main arteries in the leg and he almost bled to death. But it wasn't until he was caught out in a thunderstorm one day that Luther woke up to the fact that he needed God in his life. You see, to the typical German at the time, a lightning strike could be interpreted as the judgment of God. And so there was a day that Luther was out walking. He was out walking in the midst of a terrible thunderstorm and a crack of lightning happened right near him and he fell to the ground and as he fell to the ground, he said, save me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Well, to the displeasure of his father, Luther kept his promise. He dropped out of law school and he became a monk. By 1512, he had received his doctorate in theology and he had started lecturing in theology at the University of Wittenberg. He had a tremendous sense of his own sinfulness though and sometimes he would enter into the confessional booth and he would confess his sins for hours and hours and hours to another priest. In fact, he would confess his sins so long that sometimes he would just absolutely wear out that other priest. Luther took a trip to Rome and joined others who would, who would crawl up the staircase in that beautiful church building there and up, up to the uh, statues and the very various relics that the Roman Catholic Church had. He crawled up the staircase on his hands and knees and he would stop at every single step and he would kiss it and he would recite the Lord's Prayer and he would go up to the next step. Luther had this tremendous sense that he needed to do whatever he could do to purge himself of his sins and to cleanse himself of sins. He would freeze himself to death almost at times. And then he would starve himself in extended fastings. He did all of these things trying to appease a righteous God. He tried so hard to win God's favor that at one point he grew exasperated and he vowed that he absolutely hated God. How could he love a God that was so righteous and he was so sinful? And regardless of what he tried to do to cleanse himself of his sins, he still had this tremendous sense of his own sin debt and he was disillusioned and so he grew to hate God. It was not until Luther had the responsibility of lecturing through the book of Romans that he was converted. He came to Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 and while exegeting that text and preparing to teach it, God got a hold of his heart and opened his eyes and brought about true biblical conversion in his life. He was never the same after that event. 
From that point on, he worked diligently against the Roman Catholic system of people having to work for their own salvation or buying indulgences to try to get their loved ones out of purgatory. Now, of course, Martin Luther became a prominent figure in the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, we could say that Martin Luther had a passion for God even when that passion was misguided when he was trying to earn favor with God. After his conversion, he had a true passion for God and he wanted people to understand what genuine New Testament conversion is really all about. Now folks, when we come to a passage like this in Isaiah, when we come to Isaiah 64, we see that what the prophet is expressing here is a passion for God that is expressed through a prayer. It is a prayer of desperation. You and I need to understand the context of Isaiah 64. You see, all through the book of Isaiah, he's been talking about how the Assyrians are going to come in and overrun the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that make up Israel. And indeed, the Assyrians came in, overran the northern kingdom, and scattered them all together. And they really didn't factor that much in, or not at all really, into the rest of the New Testament, the Old Testament narrative but the book of Isaiah not only talks about the Assyrians coming in and overrunning the northern kingdom but Isaiah also talks about the Babylonians coming into the southern kingdom the two tribes in the southern kingdom uh, under Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians came in and, and took them away into exile for 70 years and so all of these events are about to take place as Isaiah is writing this letter. Some of the events are already underway. God's people are in trouble. They're in desperation. All of this is about to happen to their nation. If there was ever a time that they needed God, it was now. And so again, Isaiah offers this prayer to God. It is a plea that the true people of God would not be satisfied until we know who it is that sits above the heavens. It is one thing to want to know how the heavens go, but it's a far greater thing to want to know who it is that directs the heavens. And so this passage is a plea. It's a plea that the people of God would experience a fresh touch from God which would leave them changed. But it also shows why we don't experience the power and presence of God more often than we do. Despite the fact that he's working out his purposes in the world, there's a problem in the human heart. And so he addresses that as well. The first thing I want you to note with me this morning is we see here a petition for God's presence. Read with me again verse 1. He says, All that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now let me carry you back to chapter 63 for a moment. If we could go back and read all of chapter 63, what we would see the prophet recounting is all of those times in the past that God had come down and intervened on behalf of his people. You read through the Old Testament and from time to time you see God coming down and doing mighty things in their midst. And one of the very specific things that he talks about in chapter 63 was when the children of Israel, they've been leaving Egypt and as they're leaving Egypt, they, they get out just before they get out into the wilderness. There they are, they're trapped in against the Red Sea. And here comes Pharaoh's army because Pharaoh's army has, has Pharaoh has uh, awakened and he's like, why in the world have I let the Hebrews go? And he sends 
sends his army to go after them. And so they go after them and they find them and they're trapped against the Red Sea. And of course we know what happened. God opened the Red Sea up and the children of Israel walked across on dry land. And when Pharaoh tried to pursue them, God brought the waters of the Red Sea crashing back in on them. And so that's one of the great events chapter 3 talks about when it's like God had, had, rent, had rent the heavens and he had come down on behalf of his people and done some mighty work. But since then, it's like the heavens had gone silent. Here were the Assyrians coming in against them. And here were the Babylonians that were going to be coming in against them. And where is God? Why is God not intervening on our behalf? Why is God not answering our prayers? Why is God not doing the great acts that he did like he did in the days of old? It's like God has pulled a curtain and hid himself behind that curtain. And he's not hearing the heart cry of his people anymore. Have you ever been there? Sure you have. I think we've all been there at some point in our lives. When we're going through some trial or tribulation in our life and we get down on our hands and knees and we're praying to God and we're praying to God and we're praying to God and it's like the heavens are silent and we wish God would just come down and do something. Why won't God change my situation? Why won't he change this trial that I'm going through? We've all felt those times in our life when the heavens were silent. So we can relate to this. Folks, let's think about some of the times in life when we long for God to do exactly what Isaiah is saying here. We need God's presence in the midst of our trials. The Bible says we all go through trials and tribulation. All you have to do to go through a trial as a believer is just live long enough. You're going to have trials and tribulations in your life. And folks, Christians go through things just like people in the world go through. And sometimes we're in the midst of those and we struggle and we desire God's presence in the middle of that. I think of Elijah. Elijah, when he was on the run from, uh, from uh, Queen Jezebel, what did Elijah need in his life more than anything else? He needed that assurance of the presence of God. And remember what God ended up doing? Hiding him in the cleft of the rock. And he allowed uh, Moses to see his back as he, as he passed by. And then also he spoke to Elijah through that still small voice. We need God's presence in times of trials like that. We need God's presence when we go through suffering in our life. Again, God's people suffer just like everybody else because we live in a fallen world. What's the difference then in people of faith? Well, as people of faith, we know that we're never alone because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, we serve the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. But in all of our afflictions, in all of our suffering, we need the presence of God. We need the presence of God when there's opposition we're going through. When we're facing opposition because of our faith, we've just come through a study of 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, Peter is trying to explain to his readers that they are to live as strangers and pilgrims in the world. They're not to be like the world. And as they live right side up in an upside down world, they're going to face opposition in the world and hatred from the world. And in times like that, we need God's presence. We need God's presence to carry out our assignments. Sometimes you might feel like God's called you to do something. Something in the church. Teach a Sunday school class. Lead out in some ministry and you say, how in the world can I do that? 
and you cry out for God's presence. I think of Moses when God was directing Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver the Hebrews. Moses said, God, I can't do that. And, and God said, Moses, you don't understand. I am going to go with you. And he gave him that rod, that staff. And he also gave him his brother Aaron. So Aaron would be a mouthpiece. And he said, uh, Moses, in all that you do, I'm going to be right there. And I'm going to be right with you. We need to understand when God leads us into something, God equips us and God is with us. But folks, I want you to understand something though about this text that you and I can say, you and I can affirm that Isaiah could not affirm. Isaiah is crying out to God that God would rend the heavens and come down. And you and I living on this side of the cross under the new covenant need to understand that under the new covenant God has already answered this heart cry in the greatest way of all because he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, he has rent the heavens and come down. The gospel of John, the first chapter says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Folks, God could not intervene for his people any more than he's done in Jesus Christ. Through the incarnation, God has rent the heavens and come down. And 1 Peter 3.18 says that in the incarnation and Jesus going to the cross, the Bible says the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. God rent the heavens and came down in his son. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and he died in your place and my place on the cross that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and that we might have access to a holy God. The writer of Hebrews understands the significance of this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10 and I want to pick up reading there in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, Wavering for he who promised is faithful. If like Martin Luther you are convicted over your sin and your lostness. And you desire more than anything else to have peace with God. And the presence of God in your life. Then you need to see that God has made all of that possible through a relationship with him by sending his son, Jesus Christ. God's rent the heavens and come down. 
But have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? I want to say to you this morning, and somebody needs to hear this. You can be in church every single week and still be lost. You need to be born again. You need to come to Christ. Think of what happened in the incarnation when that little baby was laying in the manger and those wise men from the east came to to worship him and everybody was bowing before him and he grew up and he was that perfect man. He was God's son. He was fully God and fully man. Lived without sin. The only person who's ever been without sin. He was the second Adam and he came to accomplish what the first Adam uh, could not do and what the first Adam failed He has reconciled us to God through the sacrifice of himself. You need to come to Christ. You can have peace with God and enjoy the presence of God in your life. To Christians, I want you to go back also. To those who have already been born again, go back in your mind to Hebrews 10 a minute. Because he's rent the heavens and come down and secured your salvation. What is he saying that you can do? He's saying because of Jesus Christ, you not only have the forgiveness of your sins, but you can go into the very presence of God. You can go into the throne room of God and cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Sin was dealt with at the cross, but also the gospel of Matthew tells us that that veil in the temple was torn into, signifying entry into the holy of holies and signifying that any believer, any person who places their faith in Jesus Christ not only has the peace of their sins forgiven, but they have access before God. And so he's saying, let us boldly Take advantage of that. Let us go in to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Do you have needs in your life? Of course you have needs in your life. You have cares in your life? Of course you have cares in your life. We all do. And as believers, we can go into the presence of God. Why? Because he's rent the heavens and come down. Think about another time in the New Testament where he's rent the heavens and come down. Keep reading in the Bible. After the crucifixion and after the resurrection, you remember what happened next? Pentecost. Acts 2. Jesus had told his disciples to go and wait until the promise of the Father when the Holy Spirit would fall on them and equip them. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on on the disciples and they were changed men. They were never the same again. You, You take a Simon Peter before Pentecost and you take a Simon Peter after Pentecost and you're talking about two very different men. Simon Peter wasn't cowering in fear anymore. We see the challenge in the scripture that we need to walk in the spirit, be filled with the spirit and walk in the spirit because it is is through the Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to accomplish what God's given us to do. Jesus told his disciples, it's going to be to your advantage that I go away because I'll send another, the helper, the comforter, the teacher. So I want you to see under the new covenant, this prayer in the most powerful way was answered by God. God rent the heavens and he came down in the incarnation and then he sent his spirit on the day of Pentecost. We have blessings living on this side of the cross, don't we? Folks, there are some assurances you and I have as we 
live in a fallen world waiting on the consummation of our salvation. We've got some wonderful assurances. Assurance number one, we can know that God is active in his world accomplishing the redemption of his children. God is not silent. The whole scope of the Bible is about what he's doing to redeem a people for himself and how one of these days we will be with him in a place where he's making all things new. And so God is active. God is actively redeeming a people for himself. We can also know that God is not asleep. He doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep. Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence shall my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And we also know that God is sovereign. Romans 8.28 says he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. As I've told you before, that verse doesn't mean everything in your life is good. But God is able to take everything in a believer's life, even bad things. And he's able to work those things together ultimately for your good. Beautiful assurances in the Bible the believer has because God has rent the heavens and come down. Folks, if it were not for what God had done in our behalf, we, we would be done for. But because of God's presence, that changes everything. Secondly, I want you to see a plea for God's power. A plea for God's power. Go back to verse 1, the second part of it. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. We see here that the Israelites were praying for God's power to be so unleashed on the face of the earth that even unbelievers would tremble at His presence. You know, one of the problems with Christians today is that we are so satisfied with the way the world is. We have what we need and what we want, and so we just cruise along through life. But I want to ask you, is God's power seen in us by an unbelieving world? Does the world really see the difference that Christ makes in us? God's power is not weak. It is not a weak power. God is able to do beyond anything we could even imagine or think. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Do we live out the gospel? Folks, we don't have to show the world that we're perfect. They know we're not perfect and we know we're not perfect. But they do need to see a change in us. Do they see God's power at work in us? In the scripture, we see here that God's power transcends the laws of nature. Look again at verse 1 here, that the mountains might quake at your presence. He's talking about God's power in nature. But the point is, God's power in nature was meant to show His power that is at work in us. His power over creation was to demonstrate His power in delivering us. God wasn't speaking to mountains. He was speaking to man. But what God was able to do with mountains was a lesson to what God can do in us. You see, oftentimes in the Old Testament, because they did not have the canon of Scripture like we have, God would speak to the people through different acts in nature. God would use the forces of nature. 
If they were in sin, he might bring a drought on the land. God would do things in nature. And those mighty acts that God did in nature, that was to be a biblical sermon to the people. They didn't have the Bible on their lap like you as complete as you and I do. And so God would speak to them in nature through mighty acts. I realize God can still do that today sometimes if we don't even put the pieces together and see it. But it does seem to be more of a consistent pattern in the Old Testament that God used the forces of nature. I think of Moses at the burning bush. The bush was burning but it wasn't being consumed. Again, I think of the parting of the Red Sea. I think of that manna that God gave from heaven. You come to the New Testament and you see Jesus speaking to the winds and the waves saying, peace be still. You see a lot of Jesus' miracles over nature. Why did God do that? Well, Jesus was doing those acts over nature so that the people could see his identity. They weren't to be miracle chasers, but they were to see Jesus doing over nature things that only God can do. So if Jesus is doing things that only God can do, then what does that say about Jesus? Who must Jesus be? If Jesus is doing what only God can do, Jesus must be God. See, the light bulb was to come on. They weren't to be miracle chasers. The miracles were to point them to the one who was doing the miracle. This same God who can transcend the laws of nature is who is at work in you who believe. Read your Bible, all the miracles that God did. The same God who did those miracles is the same God who is at work in people today. And the book of Revelation points out that as the time of the tribulation comes on and gets worse, God's going to once again use the forces of nature, the things in the heavens that He's going to do to get people's attention on earth. But again, all these deeds in in nature with the mountains and the floods and the droughts and the man, all that was to demonstrate to people God's power and that God could watch after them. God's power tends to life. It watches over life. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He asked God to take it away three times. God refused. Instead, God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Do you have something in your life that's like a thorn in the flesh? God can help you. God can give you strength. Do you believe that? Have you given God a chance? Have you and your spouse given the Lord a chance to work in your marriage? You know, we talk about God's power and then so oftentimes people in church walk away from their marriage too soon without giving God a chance. Now, I'm not saying some don't try because I know they do. But others, I've known others who walk away too soon. Folks, give yourself time to see what God might do to heal that marriage. How about that job you absolutely hate? What might God be up to? God's power could be displayed through you in that workplace. God has you there for a reason. When God wants to move you, He'll move you somewhere else. But have you ever stopped to think God might have a plan and a purpose with you being where you are? Have you given God a chance to use you in that environment? I don't want to make light of any of the difficulties of life that people go through because life is incredibly hard for some. But I'm just simply saying never underestimate God's power to tend to your life. God's power triumphs over death. God raised his son from the dead. Folks, you don't get a more awesome display of power than that right there. Take a man who's dead, and after he's been laying in his tomb for three days, God raises him from the dead. And because he's been raised, you too shall be raised, the scripture says. Talk about power. 
Power over death. Victory over death. The grave is not the end for the believer. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. God's power. Do you see it? We serve a God who can do the impossible. But folks, I want you to realize something. He may not immediately give you everything in your life that you want right now. I get so tired of hearing some preacher say, God's supposed to come in and fix all the wrongs in your life right now if only you will have enough faith. Well, not necessarily. God may wait. He may even wait to heaven to fix some of the wrongs in your life and some of the suffering you're going through in your life. But one day he will fix it. That's what the story of redemption is all about in the Bible. One of these days, God is going to make everything right. One of these days, we're going to experience the consummation of our salvation. Read the end of the book. Everything gets fixed that's wrong with the world. He makes everything new. Amen? That's his power that's able to do that. You may experience some of it now. You may have to wait on some of it. But his power is at work around us every day. Now. There are times that we know God's rent the heavens in the incarnation at Pentecost. We know he's going to do it again one day when he comes back for his bride. But there's sometimes in our lives right now, it's like, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you to speak to me. And the prophet goes on to tell us here, the prophet Isaiah, why sometimes... Why sometimes we need to look in a mirror and understand why we're not experiencing God more in our lives than we are. And so thirdly, what I want you to see this morning is a prescription for God's people. Begin reading with me in verse 4. He says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. You see some problems there? I do. Why is he saying we don't experience God more than we do? First of all, we've got to wait on God. Look at verse 4 again. We've got to wait on God. How long has it been since we tarried for God on a daily basis? The Hebrew word for wait here can have a negative connotation to it. it it's waiting like, like somebody is waiting on somebody to ambush them. Or like a Hello? Or like somebody, a hunter who's waiting on prey, their prey. Do we have any deer hunters in here? Any deer hunters? No? No? Yeah, okay. You know, I do that some, but it sure does get cold sitting out in those woods at 5 a.m. in the morning. I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It got daylight and finally there he was and I got him. But you have to wait. Do we wait on God with that kind of intensity or do we just simply busy ourselves with life? 
Folks, what could and what would God do in our midst if we were to long after Him? Is there that time in your life day to day that you wait for? Maybe, maybe for some it's early in the morning. Maybe for others it's not in early in the morning. Maybe that's not the best time for you. But are there those times every day that you sit before the Lord with His Word in your hand and you ask Him to make His Word come alive? You ask Him to speak to you through His Word and you just sit there and you read and you read and you reflect and you pray and you listen. You see, folks, we're in too big of a hurry. We busy ourselves about our lives. We busy ourselves about everything. We make appointments with everything else. And we get to the end of the day. And the one person we've neglected in our life is the, is the, is the one being, the one sovereign being who matters the most. And that's the sovereign God of the universe. And He is not going to bend Himself to your schedule. Okay? He's not. He's not going to bend himself to my schedule. You got to wait on him. I'm going to ask every person in here to do something this week that some of you, maybe you've never done. I'm going to ask you every day, just like you would calendar a doctor's appointment or some kind of appointment, calendar an hour or an hour and a half every day. That's not asking too much. Every day, calendar, schedule, just like an appointment that you're going to sit before God and you're going to wait and you're going to study and you're going to pray. Do that this week. Calendar off an hour, hour and a half every day and see what happens by next Sunday. Your spirit's going to be warmed and your heart's going to be encouraged like you won't believe. But you've got to wait on God. Do you care enough about him to wait on him? He told Jeremiah, those who seek him will find him when they seek for him with all of their hearts. Wait on him. And then he mentions in verse 5, walking in righteousness, and he tells us what he means by that. Walking in righteousness, we've got to seek his ways. Isaiah 55 said, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so that situation that you're in right now, you're wrestling over that trial or tribulation. Are you committed to going God's way? God, whatever your way is in this, I'm going to do your way. Or you kind of have your own little way tucked aside and you think, well, you know what? I might go God's way or I might go my way. No, Isaiah is saying here we've got to be committed to going God's way. Doing things God's way. You want to hear from God? You want God to speak to you in that trial or trouble you're going through? You've got to be committed in your heart that you're going to go God's way. Then he talks in this same text about dealing with sin in your life. He says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, polluted garments. In the Hebrew, it's not meant to be offensive. I mean, it's what the word is. In the Hebrew, what he's talking about is, is the monthly menstrual cloth. Dirty gar dirty claws. All of our sins and all of our righteousnesses are as a dirty used menstrual cloth. That's what our sin is like. And some people are just satisfied to live with that. Sin and God don't mix. You want God to speak to you? You want to experience God in your life in a fresh way? What sins in your heart that you know God needs to deal with? Come on now. Be on. God knows what your sin is. God's sovereign. God sees you think you're keeping it from God. What sin is in your heart or mind or life you need to deal with? Are you committed to dealing with it? And then in verse 7 he says, There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Let the Panthers go to the Super Bowl, we'll rouse ourselves. Let somebody get a promotion ahead of you, you'll rouse yourself. Let the stock market go up or down and you'll rouse yourself. But let your spiritual life need attention. And what do we do so often 
you slumber and you do nothing about it. And he's saying here, is there nobody? Is there nobody who will rouse themselves for God? Will you? Folks, as he says here, we're, we're the clay. He's the potter. We've got to come before him with open hands and say, God, more than anything else in my life, I want a fresh passion for you. You've rent the heavens and come down in the incarnation. You've rent the heavens at Pentecost and come down. And you're going to do it again in the second coming. But God, I need you to rent, rent the heavens and come. I need you to speak to me. I need you to work in my life. But are you willing to pay the price and deal with those things in your life that are keeping God from speaking to you? Every head bowed, every every eye closed. God, thank you that in regards to sin, you have rent the heavens and come down. You've sent your Son. And so I pray right now that that person who's here that's lost would come to you in repentance and faith. Scripture says you stand at the door of our heart and you knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and fellowship with him. Lord, we know that's an invitation that was given to a church. But I think it also says something to an individual. If they hear you knocking, God, I pray that they'll come to you. Thank you that at Pentecost you rent the heavens and came down. Through the presence of your Spirit, we can have comfort now and counsel. The way people under the old covenant couldn't. And we have the power we need to carry out the assignments you've given us. Lord, that person struggling with an assignment that that maybe they've been asked in the church to do or something they know you're putting on their heart. Encourage them by your spirit. And Lord, there are trials your people have that in a very real way, they need you to rend the heavens and come down might be with a marriage maybe a child or a grandchild could be with a sibling could be some situation they're faced with at work and they don't know what this new week is going to bring in their lives they need you Lord speak to them help them intervene show them your ways show them your will It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.